came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Ksenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome back, everybody, to episode three of season three of Disasters Deconstructed podcast. Hey, Ksenia. Hey, Jason. How are you doing? I'm good. It's been a long week. We had a very full schedule at the Natural Hazards Workshop and Researchers Meeting, which was virtual this year, which was kind of cool. Yeah, I think long week is the underestimation of the year. <laughs> I'm kind of I'm exhausted. I was working on like UK time zone and then US time zone. And I've got, I feel as jet lagged um, as if I were in Boulder, which is kind of exciting. You know, makes me feel a little bit more um, involved. But uh, the workshop was amazing. Just so much stuff covered and I absolutely love that they were able to bring people that I guess we wouldn't be able to see people from indigenous communities lots of practitioners members of community it was just fantastic to hear from them yeah that was definitely a highlight gotta give credit to Lori Peak and the team over there for organizing such a big virtual conference at short notice and in terms of our participation, we organized a training workshop on the first day of the conference with Scott Knowles of Code Calls, who was with us on episode one of this season to help us kick off. Um, that was great. Did you enjoy that? Oh, it was so much fun. I mean, I, I really like talking to Scott. There's just so much to learn, right? And mm. the conversation with him was always so nice. And it was really cool to be on COVID calls um, last week as well. It was just fantastic. I really enjoyed that. But the session that we ran with Scott, I am so pleased that we kind of all got together and it was just such a nice opportunity to collaborate because I think we're trying to, you know, promote the same thing. We really care about the discourse and the narrative and how we communicate these aspects. And I'm so glad that Kendra, Stephanie and Andy helped us to deliver that session. I think, I hope people enjoyed it. <laughs> I certainly enjoyed it. I do think that the way we talk about disasters is critical if we actually want to understand what it is we're trying to achieve. In our previous seasons, and in the first couple of weeks in season three, we've been coming back to the issue of why disasters actually happen, how risk is created and to the role of narrative in it. Stories affect how we see places and people affected by disasters and also how we act after a disaster. As we've been discussing with Sam Montano last week, news often tells us stories about damage and destruction, but hardly ever unpacks the long-term processes that lead to a disaster. And that in turn leads to another disaster, right? Yeah, exactly. And this is what we want to talk about today. So. Today with us is Karen Gadboa, who is the co-founder of The Lands, the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. Karen writes about New Orleans government issues and the land use. 
Uh, with television reporter Lee Zurich, she exposed widespread misuse of city recovery funds uh, that led to guilt pleas in federal court. Karen, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Well, we of course want to talk about the lens, but we'll come back to this um, in a minute. First, um, we really, really want to talk to hear about your journey. So the lens was born from the blog called Squandered Heritage that you started in 2007. And in your blog, you've been documenting and reporting on issues related to demolition, rebuilding, and all sorts of land use issues that have become really prominent and apparent after Katrina. And unfortunately, these kind of actions, you know, are not unique to New Orleans. We see it absolutely all over around the world. When after a disaster, risk is simply recreated because vulnerabilities are being reestablished. And, you know, for some, profits are being made. So what made you care about this kind of problems? Well, um... I was, uh, at the time, a couple things. I, I uh, had evacuated with my uh, now ex-husband and our daughter, and we hadn't been living in New Orleans all that long. We had been living in New Orleans for about three, two, three years, um, and we'd moved there from Mexico where we had lived. Well, my ex-husband had lived there for generations, but my uh, daughter was born there and raised there, and we had, we had just moved to New Orleans. Uh, and I had always been... Um, a fan of architecture in general, and uh, my dad was a, a building tradesman. He was a lath master, and uh, I was inspired by his his dedication to his craft. And so I paid attention. I wasn't sort of an architectural snob; it was more of what I called um, quotidian. I loved the sort of humble houses in New Orleans. Um, rather than the uh, sort of spectacular mansion, I like the sort of simple shotgun. Uh, so I, I enjoyed the sort of environment of, uh, of architecture that, that is uh, and is still somewhat present in New Orleans. And that was my first, you know, this, this sort of shame of, of demolishing um, and then the question of rebuilding and what that would mean for a neighborhood or community. And uh, I also, my uncle is a somewhat well-known um, planner in the UK, in England. His name is John uh, oh. Turner. And uh, he was a early proponent of building um, mm. by the people, mm -hmm. sort of, you mm -hmm. know, vernacular architecture. And uh, my aunt, who's, she's my, my, uh, my, my dad's sister, um, they were, you know, very early proponents of involving community and decision-making around land use. So, while well, I was not in that field, nor was I um, in any way in acad academia nor practitioner, I was, I was living in a neighborhood, and um, I was interested in what my neighborhood would look like and who would be there. So, that was my interest in squandered heritage. And then also, just sort of oddly enough, I had uh, cancer at the time. And so I was uh, in a, you know, a year-long trial of a medicine that had me sitting in a, in a hospital once a week. And I thought, I could do this blogging while I'm sitting here. I could kind of take myself away um, and engage myself in, in, in a project about the rebuilding of the city uh, as my daughter said at the time I was rebuilding myself and rebuilding the city. So that was my interest in um, 
and squandered heritage. And, and it didn't take long for me to recognize that, that in the United States, um, the economy is tied to housing starts. And uh, the demolition was really, you know, I had lists and lists and lists of properties that had been proffered for demolition where people were um, either actively rebuilding or planned to rebuild or had rebuilt, renovate, you know, re re reconstructed their homes. So it just seemed to me like there was something really nefarious and ill-advised going on. And that, that led me to just sort of be more questioning. Because at first the project was really what I called a memory project, which was just taking pictures of houses before they were demolished so that we could then later, I mean, I had in my mind too tied it all into a sort of mental health package and that we each, all of us, go home every day and or go wherever we go every day. And we just sort of take our visual clues without thinking, like the big tree and the orange house and the red flowers and whatever it is that is in our inventory. And that by destroying all these houses at the same time, we were really shaking people's psyches. So that's what made me sort of care about it and, and really push forward with the with active media presence, even though I had no media experience. So Karen, let's talk about the lens. So on your website, you state that you report stories that others aren't reporting or can't report. And often, I suppose, these are the stories that actually engage and empower local citizens, right? So the first thing I want to ask on this is, why is this kind of journalism so needed? And who are the stories that you write for? Well, it took me a few years to develop a sort of, um, you know, case for the lens uh, between the time will be 10 years now. So it took us it took me and then uh, Ariella Cohen, who is my co-founder, like five years to put some legs underneath, uh, you know, us. And uh, during that time, it was really clear that um, the disaster is the disaster. Mm -hmm. And then the period after the disaster is truly the disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And that, you know, not having studied or researched disasters all that much. And I had spent many years in Mexico and uh, saw that the disaster of the earthquake was indeed a, a, a moment in time, but the, the after effects, this was coming along at a time when resilience was seen as a real positive word. Mm. Um, and I feel strongly that resilience is a neutral word um, and shouldn't, it shouldn't be seen as, as a positive because corruption is equally resilient. Corruption is maybe more resilient. Um, and so... It was. It took some time, and I knew as well. Or I had, you know, I had, I had believed there were two things I believed when I was evacuated. And one was that I needed to, to uh, everyone needed to buy the newspaper, so it wouldn't fail. Mm -hmm. And everyone, even if they didn't want to, should go to church or at least uh, support. And that was because, as an institution, the Catholic Church is a really strong. I've, I've said, seen the error of my ways, but. The Catholic Church is a really strong um, cultural institution that actually triple failed after Katrina. Mm. Um, mm. But I lived across the street from a church, and I thought, 
I just don't want to see that church closed. Yeah. Um, which it has, and now it's a bodega, so whatever. Um, but uh, so it, that was just as a way of saying, I saw that institutionally we would have failures and they would be not just the church, not just the media, uh, not just the schools, not just the government. It would be a, a, all of civil society was going to fail in some way. I mean, express failures, not exactly fail as organizations, but fail in their responsibilities um, because of for lack of things. I think the newspaper, the Times, Picky and the Time did great work, but they really didn't have a dedicated person on land use and they didn't really pay attention to the demolitions, which I saw as a precursor of something much more uh, pernicious and, and, and uh, devastating. So uh, I, I was able actually to get the traction because I had uncovered the first um, corruption story after Katrina using federal money, um, which you had referenced earlier. And that, you know, that was a story that others uh, had passed on or just hadn't spent the time in. So I, I, I felt like very strongly that, well, I may not have that capacity as an investigative reporter, so to speak, the training behind it. Um, I could see that I could see the need. Um, mm. And we were able to, um, and to, so we were able because Ariella was much better at speaking nonprofit uh, language <laughs> than I was at the time, um, and I had fortunate access to many foundations that were still interested in the the story of, of um, New Orleans post disaster. Mm. Since at the time there were many fewer disasters and many fewer communities um, expressing experiencing. The, you know, the trauma and the pain after a disaster. Mm-hmm. So we did focus early and um, we continue that focus primarily on um, uh, education, criminal justice, mm-hmm. the environment, uh, land use. And uh, we kind of, you know, segue into people. It's funny because people call it politics when it's governance, but mm-hmm. um I know that those two words mean different things, but people often interchange them mm-hmm. to mean the same. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're, um, we're slow and small uh, organization, but we have set um, and reported, you know, early on many, many stories that continue to, to arise out of that disaster, I feel. I suppose it's really important to locate some of these issues at that local level so that your um, readers can really see their place and see um, how they can contribute. So I was just just wondering, in the 10 years that you've been active, do you have any examples that you might share about how your stories have empowered people on the ground to make change and to maybe challenge systems of injustice and oppression? I think that it's always difficult because, you know, if you're doing your job correctly, you're not taking credit where you yeah. haven't been in, in, implicitly uh, 
awarded that. Um, and so we can see where our our um, work has influenced uh, change. Specifically, um, I did a story which, oh gosh, um, it's not a complicated story. It was actually a very simple story, but it resonated back at me again um, recently. Uh, our former mayor, um, Mitch Landrew, and our chief of police, uh, Surpass, um, Surpass. Uh, he, they had instituted a, it wasn't even a policy, they refused to call it a policy, a practice of releasing the um, criminal backgrounds of people who had been shot and killed. Right. So, with no context, with no sense of whether or not they had in some way undergone a catharsis or a redemption or, you know, whatever, yeah. um, it was laid out in, and it was a really degrading and, yeah. uh, and corrosive practice that um, further uh, drove a wedge between criminals, you know, between the police and uh, victims and victims' families, mm -hmm. re-victimizing mm -hmm. families um, at the same time. So there was a carjacking in the city, and this guy was walking his kid to school, and he tried to stop the carjacking, and he was shot and killed. Mm. And he was white, and... Um, well, everyone was calling him a good Samaritan, and he, he was a good Samaritan, um, but people are not that um, simple. They're complex. And he, um, I just thought it would be interesting to see if he had a criminal record, and he did. Mm -hmm. um, but the police did not release that record. Right. And he, um, and I, you know, was I honestly felt like hiding under my desk um, when I figured that out because... It, you know, it was not going to be a good story nor a popular story. Right. Um, but I felt like it was an important story. And so I published that. And um, the, within 24 hours, the, the, uh, the police department uh, vowed to stop that practice. Uh, oh. So that was one in which I could see a really quick and clear line between uh, exposing what they were doing, or at least I wouldn't say so much exposing, but really just highlighting at a time when the rest of the media was focused on the Good Samaritan. Um, the Good Samaritan also, he had uh, volunteered with the local police force and had become a sort of mascot of the police, which, you know, that's a nice maybe story, um, but it's also, you know, highlighting the incomplete nature of releasing people's criminal records without painting a full picture of who they are. So that was one very clear line between um, a story and, an, and, an, and a reaction and an action. Uh, recently, we did a long term. It was very long. It was very arduous. Um, the issuance of our district attorney who was issuing fake subpoena to crime victims uh, is compelling them to testify with, with subpoenas that were falsified. Mm. And it's now, um, gosh, I don't know what the status is in the court, but it's working its way through. The ACLU brought a case against um, against the district attorney based on our reporting. 
And so that was another one in which that, that took so much time and so much, um, whereas my story was real quick. You know, my story was mm-hmm. 24 hour story. This was years um, of effort on the, by our reporters, who's now our editor, Charles Maldonado. Um, so that's an, another example. I think those are <laughs> sort of the quick example and the, and the hard long term example. Um, but we have had many other um, instances. As I say, no one usually gets up at the podium and thanks us um, for our hard work, but uh, politicians tend to like to think it's their idea. I want to bring us back to kind of research, right? So, I mean, I've never been to New Orleans. Um, I've mm-hmm. been to the US once, uh, but I sort of feel like I know so much about it. I'm, and I'm not, I'm sure I'm not the only disaster scholar who feels <laughs> that way because, you know, for unfortunately in disaster studies, New Orleans is kind of quite famous. Um, and many of us, I guess, use the story of Katrina when we try to explain why disasters are not natural, right? Because we, it, you know, the, the story, story of New Orleans and the story of Katrina really helps us to highlight the issues of um, geography of poverty, racism, uh, inequality, kind of greed, disaster capitalism, you name it. Um, it's sort of all there. But for you as a person living in New Orleans, how do you feel about New Orleans being so popular, and I use quotation marks, um, among the researchers? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's, uh, I think it's only frustrating. I think we, most people accept it. And as I do as well, I mean, it's an interesting topic. You know, I think sometimes people feel like it's, it's a, it's a feudal circle, you know, that we're in where y'all, you know, as researchers and experts are researching and, and writing papers and presenting and, and who, you know, how does it affect policy? Like, I think people would be much more um, amenable if, if, if policies had followed the research. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you don't have any control over that as, as, as you know, in academia, there's no control over how your research gets used in the same way there's no control how, how um, you know, journalism gets used. Mm-hmm. You, would, you would like to think that it it's going into a pot of, of uh, information that feeds the greater good. Um, and I think that's how most people see it. Uh, I do think people feel in some ways that they've taken part in another form of an extractive economy yeah. um, mm. where the extraction is, is pain um, and experience. And uh, there was all, I, I'll just tell you quickly, my daughter at the time of Katrina was in the ninth grade. She's a fifteen year old. Her mom had cancer. Mm-hmm. The house was a mess. Um, it, all her friends were scattered. Uh, you know, it was a difficult time and of course obviously a difficult time. And uh, I went to her my sister who's in Florida who had been in the hurricane the year before us, asked me what, what is the school doing for mental health services, my social work. So of course she, she went straight to that, and um, when I thought, I thought about it, I was like, I don't know what they're doing. So I went up 
to the school and I said, what kind of services are you offering these kids? And there's a high achieving public school. Um, the level of arrogance there about the kids. And uh, they, the school counselor was crying because her life was wrecked too. <laughs> um, but I, as I asked the question, she said, what do you mean? I said, I don't know, you know, suicide, and, you know, what, whatever, what happens to kids. Um, and the next day he called my daughter in the office because I had said the word suicide. She was so mad at me. Um, but then I said, well, what have you done? And they said, well, we've allowed uh, researchers from the state university to come in and survey the kids. And I said, well, what, what does that bring? You know, you're extracting from these kids, and, and this is a state university within the state of that they live in. It's not even like you allowed someone from far away. Like, uh, mm. and there was really nothing. So that extraction at the level of children um, was concerning to me, and and sort of, you know, a level of of uh, questioning. I had taken part in a, a long, a longer term study by. University was a very libertarian university. I can't remember the name of it. And you know, when when I saw what they had researched, what they were producing, particularly around uh, transit, and their their solution to the lack of people leaving the city was that people should have more cars. Um, <laughs> so sometimes you think I'm I'm participating in a way, and then you find out that your participation is actually being slightly um, you know, twisted into to mm -hmm. conform to someone's, you know, legitimate or illegitimate um, proposition. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, as, as, a, as a city, I think it was always really interesting, especially when people would publish books about Katrina, which you know, are still happening. Um, the sort of, you know, book review on Twitter or Facebook you know, from people, you say, like, I don't really need to read this. Um, like everyone on on XYZ is saying they got it all wrong. Um, right. And then, of course, what happens is, and, and I think this is um, this is the lesson I think I, I really felt like I learned from, uh, there was a series of lectures on, um, I think it was uh, MIT did on disasters that were online. Um, called resilient cities, and one of the things I, I took I took away was that you know as soon as as soon as the political class is able to capture and um, subvert citizens' efforts, they will. Um, the doors that are blown open, in you know civic doors that are blown open, are are um, quickly shut as, as soon as possible. Um, and so, you know, I think that kind of leeriness about researchers isn't always legit, but sometimes it's. Yeah, I mean, um, I wish we would kind of hear um, this more, right? Because I think as researchers, and we are used to this in general, we, we come and then we tell, we, you know, we collect the stories and then we go, right? And um, 
um, it's kind of we call it now the gold rush when disaster happens and just everyone just goes to this disaster just try to extract the stories which is um, you know we find quite unethical really and uh, yeah it's just sad um, but so what stories are we missing then what do you think we should be telling as disaster researchers or you know should we at all be telling stories um, of people and of New Orleans well I think I think people, you know, I don't know the whole canon of, of research done, and so I would hesitate to suggest they're missing because you're probably not. I mean, I think I think the major frustration in New Orleans is is really around what did we learn and what did we fix, and whether that be there's there's a, a friend of mine who started a blog. He's an engineer, and it's probably one of the most tedious blogs in terms of content, but he really was just focused on the pumps, the pumps for our, 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 you know, all the water gets pumped out of the wellness. Every drop of rain gets pumped out. So we are, you know, umbilically tied to this, to this water removal system. Um, if it doesn't work, we flood and we have flooded numerous times over the last few years uh, from rainstorms. Um, and it's caused such uh, post-traumatic stress triggers in people, which people say jokingly, but it's true. I mean, it starts to rain and everyone panics um, that their cars are going to get flooded or their houses. And, uh, you know, he has watched on that thing for 15 years. After a particularly bad uh, rain event in which many people were stranded and flooded, including mm. my, my own child uh mm. he discovered some sort of mechanical issues and, and and that institution that we so heavily depend on is so corrupted and so so dysfunctional and i think that you know getting back to that question i don't know how that you know i don't know how a researcher comes in and fixes that but the, the point is that that's just one of our many issues that were on display after right. katrina that you know, poverty, <laughs> race, health inequities, uh, you know, just all that. I mean, I think it's ironic that our former mayor who oversaw our police department that published uh, the, the criminal records of victims uh, now heads up, a, you know, a nonprofit to uh, overcome racial inequality. Um, yeah. And so the, I think that the good news about New Orleans is that people still you know, keep on keeping on. The bad news is all those issues of, of poverty and, and mm -hmm. greed and corruption and racism, they're all still there. Uh, I think that's the sort of tragedy of it all. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today, Karen. We really appreciate getting the chance to talk to you and hear some of these stories and appreciate all the work that you're doing. Well, thank you. It's been great to talk to you too. And, um, uh, Keep studying uh, disasters and new ones. Uh, we do appreciate it, although we we may gripe about it from time to time. Well, I'll tell you what we we will not call you resilient. How about that? Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. 
And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You've been listening to Xenia, Jason, and me, Karen Gadois, on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast.